0: National Security This Week. A weekly look at American national security issues. And now your host, John Olson. Good morning everyone. It's Wednesday, December 20th, 2023, and you've joined us for National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. We get together every Wednesday morning here on KYMN Radio to discuss national security. We're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to explore national security challenges and opportunities. In early November, I promised we'd complete a series of shows dedicated to learning about Central Asia, and we continue that series today. With us to look at not only Central Asia, but also the Caucasus region, is Dr. Jennifer Wistrand. Jennifer Wistrand is the Deputy Director of the Kennan Institute. She holds a Bachelor of Arts in Anthropology and French, from Northwestern University, and a Master of Arts and Doctorate in Anthropology from Washington University in St. Louis. Her areas of expertise are migration and forced displacement in the Caucasus and Caucasus Central Asia and humanitarian and development approaches to managing migration and forced displacement. Prior to joining the Kennan Institute, Dr. Wisterand was an assistant teaching professor in the Department of Global and Intercultural Studies at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Prior to that, she was a consultant to the World Bank For projects concerning internally displaced persons, women, and youth in Azerbaijan, Sudan, and Morocco. She was a term appointee and a Mellon American Council of Learned Societies Fellow in the U.S. Department of State's Secretary of State's Office of Religion and Global Affairs, in the Bureau of European Asian Affairs, and the Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations. She also taught at the Center for Eurasian, Russian, and East European Studies and the Institute for the Study of International Migration at Georgetown University. Dr. Wistrand had held a number of fellowships, including a Fulbright Fellowship in Azerbaijan and a Title IX Kennan Institute uh, Fellowship uh, as well. Finally, she was also a Peace Corps volunteer in Turkmenistan, which is one of the places we'll be discussing today. Dr. Jennifer Wistrand, welcome to National Security This Week. Thank
1: you very much. It's an honor to be with you.
0: So we, we actually, uh, f- just for everybody's inside knowledge, we have a new system today w- that we're running here on the Zoom system, that's it's working great. So <laughs> Jeff Johnson, who's running the studio for us, he and I are both very happy right now. Everything's <laughs> coming together just fine. Uh, so Dr. Wistrand, let's begin by learning a little bit more about the Kennan Institute at the Wilson Center. Could you please uh, tell us uh, about the Wilson Center, and then we'll drill down and explain a little bit more about what the Kennan Institute is specifically.
1: Sure. Uh, so for those who aren't familiar with the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, or the Wilson Center as it's more commonly known, it, it was established by an act of Congress in 1968, and it was attended first and foremost to be a living memorial to Woodrow Wilson, who was, he was a scholar, a university president, and the 20th president of the United States. The Wilson Center is composed of a number of institutes. And there I usually make the comparison to people. If you think of a university has department, a lot of think tanks have institutes or programs. So the Kennan Institute was established in 1974, and it's the Wilson Center's oldest institute. Uh, It was initially focused exclusively on the study of Russia. And with time, staff and scholars have come to look at not only Russia, but Ukraine, Belarus, and the countries that make up the Baltics, caucuses in Central Asia. And the Wilson Center is called a think tank by many, and that's, I would say, an apt description in many respects, but it is distinguished from other think tanks um, on a couple of parameters. And that, I quote here from our website, it's, quote, congressionally chartered, scholarship driven, and fiercely nonpartisan. So as I mentioned at the outset, you know, it was congressionally chartered in 1968. A lot of think tanks rely 100% on donations, but but Wilson Center is different in that respect. Um, Scholarship-driven, our model is bringing in academics, actually, in a yearly cycle. And a lot of people who work there have PhDs. And then finally, fiercely nonpartisan. Again, a lot of think tanks can have a reputation for either being, you know, slightly left of center or slightly right of center, but the Wilson Center is modeled on being fiercely nonpartisan. Um, in terms of maybe what we do, since I think for a lot of people think tanks, it's unclear precisely what they do, and I can just speak for the Wilson Center, but, uh, and again, in our particular model. So we do host scholars who conduct research, write, and give public talks. Uh, so actually, my very first position on my PhD 12 years ago was I had a fellowship at the Kennan Institute where I got to do that, take opportunity to do research, write, and give public talks. We organize panel discussions and other kinds of in-person online and hybrid events around a variety of topics. We convene experts for closed door discussions. We produce a number of publications, um, and host podcasts. And I would make a plug for your audience members. If they are interested, you can find the Kennedy Institute's websites and then you'll have access to, um, what we've got, the Russia file, the Focus Ukraine, some of our popular blogs. Um, We also write, we give public talks, we do interviews, like I'm doing right now, and we do briefings, uh, sometimes on the Hill, sometimes in other places.
0: Uh, So do you advise Congress and the administration ever on on policies towards uh, Russia, Central Asia kind of thing, or...?
1: I personally have not. Uh, In January, I and a colleague who's a former ambassador are going to be up on the Hill giving a briefing to some staffers. I will say I had the opportunity a couple of weeks ago, I was invited by Canada's House of Parliament's Standing Committee on Foreign Affairs and International Development to provide expert witness testimony with respect to what had recently happened in Azerbaijan, Mm -hmm. Armenia and
0: Nagorno-Karabakh. Yeah, it's been my personal professional experience that the the nonpartisan think tanks, by far and away, focus on facts and data, and that drives their analysis and and the conclusions that they draw from a from a think tank uh, policy perspective. Uh, now, Doctor Wistrand, you served as a Peace Corps volunteer. In Turkmenistan. What, what was that like? I mean, when did, when did you do that important work? Uh, what did you do during that period of your life? And what lessons did you take away from your time in Turkmenistan? And, and I ask because I'm intensely curious about Turkmenistan. It's one of the most isolated countries in the world. Maybe the only place that's more isolated is North Korea. Uh, so what can you tell us about your time in Turkmenistan?
1: Thank you. I appreciate the question. I must say the reaction you have is the reaction most people have if they're, you know, reading a resume or CV. What jumps out at them more than anything else is Turkmenistan because it is, it's a mystery for so many people. And so I feel so fortunate to have had the opportunity to spend time living there. So I I was Peace Corps volunteer back in 2000 to 2001. Most people know, who know the Peace Corps know it's a two-year commitment. Unfortunately, my group, our service was cut short a little over halfway through because of September 11th. Um, so our group, the group in Uzbekistan, the group in Kyrgyzstan were evacuated about a month after September 11th happened, but we had spent, um, 13 to 14 months there. And it was, for me, it was a phenomenal experience. I'd, I'd always wanted to be a Peace Corps volunteer and, uh, I was, um, I was an English teacher. So in the Peace Corps, you have, you know, different jobs. You know, you might be a health worker, you might be an English teacher, you might do small business development. I was an English teacher, but I also developed other projects. I started an after-school French language program um, in the summer. Some colleagues and I developed a a couple weeks summer camp for rural female English teachers. And so yeah, I would say it's a phenomenal, Peace Corps is a phenomenal experience because it brings you in country. Um, in many cases, you live with a host family. I lived with a host family. I was in the eastern part of the country near the Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan border. I had a wonderful host family who I'm still in touch with to this day. One of my host sisters went on to become an oil and gas engineer and she's based in Texas now. So catch up with her regularly. And I have several other friends from Turkmenistan who are now based in the United States and talk with them on a routine basis. Um you know had the opportunity again when you're a peace programme here because you're working in a local community you again usually living with a family, usually learning the local languages in the case of Turkmenistan Turkmen and Russian, and had the opportunity to do a, quite a bit of travel around the country to see Turkmenistan, but also a good friend and I uh took the opportunity to travel throughout Central Asia, so we went in Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, and Kyrgyzstan. Uh, I, so in answer to your question, you know, what did I learn, what was what did I take away from that experience? I would say a number of things. Um, first of all, in bringing Turkmenistan to the rest of the world, because as you said, I think a lot of people beyond North Korea, it's one of the more um, isolated parts of the world. But one thing that I think took home was the importance of international exchange programs, whatever form they take. Um, it is critical with the problems we see in the world today that I, I, I feel I believe firmly that the best way to get through these problems is to have person to person connections. And the Peace Corps is one of those. Right. I went over there. Yes, you do your job. But more of it is I got to speak to people over there and and tell them what American Americans are like. And likewise, I get to come back to the United States. And for people who say, well, isn't that a scary part of the world? Isn't it dangerous? I can say, well, no, actually, I lived with wonderful people. Uh, So I would say that's an important thing. I would say building on that. one thing I took away was that different places and people may have different views and even in sometimes opposite views. And there could be very legitimate reasons for that. Okay. So Turkmenistan is one of the former Soviet republics. remember being over in there in the early 2000s, you know, not wanting to launch into a political discussion. You're actually advised not to do that. But thinking that bringing up Gorbachev must be a neutral topic, right? Isn't <laughs> Gorbachev revered by everyone in the world over for bringing an end to the Soviet Union and realizing very quickly and, you know, large parts of former Soviet Central Asia, where what the Soviet Union brought was, you know, higher education, well, just basic universal education, basic health care, basic stability, predictability, reliability, The Gorbachev is not viewed in the same ways. And for very legitimate reasons, they don't see that. So yeah. that was an eye opening to see, you know, two parts of the world can see things very differently, again, for legitimate reasons.
0: So, I think you you highlight uh, one of the things that we we talk about here on the show quite a bit, and that 's you know how how nations use statecraft, you know the art and science of statecraft and and the tools of national power, uh, so diplomacy, the power of of sharing information or not, uh, military power and economic power and uh, one of the shows that we did some time ago was focused on public diplomacy and how important that pe- you know person to person contact is between American citizens and citizens of other countries and how that can build really important bridges over time. Uh, to exercise that. So the Peace Corps, uh, uh, I mean, it's a phenomenal program. I, I really wish more more young people would go go do that uh, early, very early in their career. Now, you pursued undergraduate and graduate degrees in anthropology. Now, I will say right off the bat, I don't generally have anthropologists on the show talking about national security topics. So tell us why, why anthropology and how does that expertise uh, help you to better understand the myriad challenges in, in both Central Asia and the Caucasus regions?
1: Thank you for that question. I hope this is an introduction of a lot of anthropologists that you know <laughs> coming on your program. I I think, you know, why would I study anthropology or what drew me to it? And why do I think it's applicable in so many areas? Um, one, and just on a personal level, when people are choosing what to study, I, I love learning about different places, people, languages, cultures, it's just naturally what I'm drawn to and living in different places. So I will say spent my junior year of college studying abroad in Paris, and then, you know, two years later, found myself in rural Turkmenistan. And I, in all honesty, can say I love them equally. You know, they were both phenomenal experiences, even though you probably couldn't have more different experiences <laughs> between Paris and rural Turkmenistan. Um, so I, I I just, I find it fascinating to learn about different places, learn how people think, why they think that way, why they make the the decisions they do. But I actually think it's very good training for national security, for you kind of made a Uh, reference to whether it's defense, diplomacy or development. I think having an anthropological background can be very helpful. And I I would say on the one hand, it's because of the tools that anthropologists use. Uh, So if you look at kind of a broad range of disciplines, you know, you've got history, on geography, political science, economics, anthropology, they all have different tools they use to collect their data. And anthropologists, it's very much like grassroots, traditionally, very much a grassroots level. You go somewhere for an extensive period of time. So for example, I spent 22 months living in Azerbaijan collecting ethnographic data there. Ethnographic, I mean by living again with people, learning the local languages and uh, observing what's going on in a day-to-day basis. You collect a lot of detailed information, which you couldn't necessarily collect from a large data set. Now, large data sets provide information that you can't collect from day-to-day interactions with people. So actually, the best thing is to have them intertwined. But I think anthropology does give you that opportunity after spending an extensive amount of time going back to my Gorbachev example to say, I can understand why people in rural Turkmenistan would be you know, reminiscing about a time when they had stability and security and the person that they perceive as having unended that for them. So you wouldn't get that necessarily if you zoomed in and out. And I will say, just, just to follow up to that, I can, um, you know, having, you mentioned, I did consulting for the World Bank. So the World Bank, we think coming out of World War II and Bretton Woods and initially rebuilding Europe and then going on to development in Africa, Asia, elsewhere. Traditionally, they were focused exclusively on hiring economists, and it was in the 80s and 90s that they realized it's actually helpful to have anthropologists, sociologists, others who can look at the same problem, but not just through an economic lens, through a sociocultural lens, through a historical lens, through a gendered lens.
0: Yeah, and I would tell you one of the biggest failings that, uh, that I think we, we have uh, when we send, you know, national security professionals out there into the world to, to deal with other countries is a lack of understanding of culture. Uh, and, and the nuances of, uh, of different ethnic groups in diff- in this, that who all live in the same country have very different cultures in many ways and you have to understand all of that interplay to understand what's actually happening on the ground before you can understand their side of national de- security decision making and how those countries would apply statecraft in their dealings with us. Uh, so the more people that we can get into the national security fields who come from a wide range of, uh, of backgrounds including anthropology who understand culture and languages and and whatnot, uh, that that would be very, very helpful for American uh, long-term national security interests. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. Jennifer Wistrand, who serves as Deputy Director of the Kennan Institute at the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. We're discussing Central Asia, the Caucasus, and forced displacement challenges for vulnerable populations in both regions. Uh, So, Dr. Wistrand, perhaps you give us a bit of an overview on both Central Asia and the Caucasus region through the lens of your expertise. What are the key challenges in both places when it comes to migration, forced displacement, and humanitarian challenges uh, for both locales?
1: Great, thank you for that question. And maybe just as a follow-on to talking about anthropology and the role anthropologists can play, for, it sounds like you've done several segments already in Central Asia. But just to underscore, uh, it, it's a large region, right? If we're Huge. looking at the Caucasus in Central Asia, and there can be a tendency, let's say, with the South Caucasus, to say, "Oh, you've got Armenia and Georgia, Christian majority. You've got Azerbaijan, Muslim majority, right?" And then to kind of generalize about from Azerbaijan all across. Central Asia, with the exception of Tajikistan, and say, oh, it's Turkic Turkic majority and Muslim majority. And, you know, Tajikistan being different in that it's uh, Muslim majority, but speaks a different language for uh, Tajik, which is similar to Farsi. So there are generalizations you can make, but as always, we want to make sure that these generalizations are broken down. Um, just again, to talk a little bit about the Caucasus, it's one of the most ethnically and linguistically diverse places on the planet. There are upwards of you know, 50 languages spoken in the Caucasus, 37 of which are indigenous to the region. So again, just to, we have to make generalizations, certainly, as you know, if you're going to be in a, an applied position, whether it's defense, diplomacy, development, but we have to always be cognizant of the, the nuances on the ground. And so with that, I will say, I will now go to the generalizations and say, um, you know, what are some of the key challenges? Uh, I would say for the caucuses, um, Forced displacement is the biggest challenge right now. Not the biggest, I shouldn't say the biggest, but one of the bigger challenges it's facing right now, followed by migration. And why does it have a forced displacement situation? Um and We can maybe talk a little bit more about the, the relationship between Azerbaijan and Armenia and most recently what happened in September of this year. But you've got right now in Armenia... You've got a recently arrived refugee population from this contested region of Nagorno-Karabakh, so upwards of 100,000. Armenians have recently moved to Armenia, so representing about 3.3% increase in their population. Azerbaijan, for its part, from this longstanding dispute between the two countries has about 659,000 internally displaced persons, or IDPs, meaning they're Azerbaijani citizens who were displaced within the country. And that represents about 6.5% of Azerbaijan's population. (laughs) And your third country in the South Caucasus, is Georgia, also has a long-standing internally displaced person or IDP population. And this comes from conflicts with Russia over the regions of Abkhazia in northwestern part of Georgia and south Ossetia in the north central part of Georgia. And in Georgia's case, it's about 300,000. Uh, internally displaced, purpose, which represents about 8.5% of its population. So your three South Caucasian countries right there, each has either a refugee or an IDP population, which is a significant percentage of its population. And I would just add on to that when I said, you know, it's not just a forced displacement, but it's a migration problem as well. Since the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February of last year, and then following on the uh, call for a partial mobilization in September of last year, you've had a large number of Russians moving out of Russia into neighboring countries, a lot have gone to Georgia as well as Armenia. And so you've got this confluence, basically, of all these different movements of people in pretty small countries. Georgia's population is about 3 million, a little uh-huh. more than 3 million, as is Armenia's. Azerbaijan's a bit larger, around 10 million.
0: Now, I, I, so I, I understand the, the the challenges with uh you know, the Russians uh, sending peacekeepers, quote-unquote, in into South Ossetia and Abkhazia uh, and sort of displacing uh, the sovereignty of the Georgian government. I also understand the Armenians leaving Nagorno-Karabakh because uh, having lost, you know, that conflict. What, what What's caused the internal displacement of people inside Azerbaijan? You said roughly 600,000 Azerbaijanis. What, what's the displacement cause factor in there?
1: Sure, so this is part of this long standing conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia. If okay. you go back to when the Soviet Union broke apart in December of nineteen ninety one you'd had this tension between Azerbaijan and Armenia over this territory of nagorno karabakh, which during the Soviet period it was a part of azerbaijan and The issue has been for a long time is that You have an Armenian, you see you've had both Azerbaijanis and Armenians that have lived there. It has tended to be a greater percentage of Armenians. However, there have been certain towns within the region which have been predominantly Azerbaijani. But if you go back to the 1920s, it was incorporated into Azerbaijan when the Soviet Union broke apart in 1991, the two countries very quickly, tensions escalated into a conflict that lasted until 1994. And Armenia, for all intents and purposes, won that conflict because they ended up taking control of Nagorno-Karabakh, as well as parts of seven adjacent Azerbaijani regions. And so that's where the internally displaced populations come Uh, from. The international community never recognized Armenia's occupation of Nagorno-Karabakh or those adjacent regions. So it was always been considered part of Azerbaijan, which is why they're displaced within Azerbaijan. Rather than in the case of the Armenians leaving Nagorno Karabakh now and going to Armenia, they would be classified as refugees because they crossed an international border. Uh, okay, okay, okay. Uh,
0: interestingly enough, I, I just uh, read an article uh, yesterday, I think it was, uh, where the UK is actually encouraging foreign direct investment into Nagorno Karabakh to restabilize the situation for the Azerbaijanis in that region of Azerbaijan. I, th- I found that very interesting. Uh, now, the, we should say also before we uh, shift over to start talking about Central Asia, more, uh, that Armenia is a member of the CSTO led by, by Russia. And yet during that conflict with Azerbaijan, they really received very little in the way of support from the CSTO members. Could you talk a little bit about the dynamics of that?
1: Sure, sure. So the CSTO, is it's the Collective Security Treaty Organization, and it was established in 2002. And it's one of the several organizations that came out of the breakup of the Soviet Union in 1991. So if you go back a little bit before that, you have the CIS, the Commonwealth of Independent States, which was basically an attempt to kind of recreate the confederation of the former Soviet states. Not all of the states agreed to. Um, the Baltics obviously wanted to have no part of it. But you have the, the CIS, then, you know, about a decade later, you have the CSTO, the Collective Security Treaty Organization, and it currently has six members, six former Soviet members. So Russia, Belarus, Armenia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and Tajikistan. And it's rolling in, in, in contrast to some of the other organizations, is to basically play a, a security function similar to NATO. So Article 4 of CSTO is similar to Article 5 of NATO, being that if one member is attacked, the other members are supposed to view that as an attack on them. And so Armenia and Azerbaijan have, uh, sorry, Armenia and Russia have historically had a very strong relationship with one another. Um, you know, Armenia Russia has a base in Armenia. Armenia has bought you know more than 90 percent of its arms from Russia for the greater share of this conflict it's had with with Azerbaijan, and also it's part of the CSTO. So Armenia expected, when this most recent conflict between it and Azerbaijan ignited in September, that Russia would come to its defense, that it was obligated to come to its defense because of the CSTO, and that in fact did not take place. And so this has led to Armenia now starting to reconsider, is Russia the ally that it said it was going to be? So it didn't take part in some of the CSTO trainings that took place in the months. Following And now it's, you know, signaling potentially that it might be looking elsewhere for security and other alliances.
0: And in fact, uh, there have been U.S. military personnel in there uh, working with and advising uh, the Armenian military, I think. I think I've read reports about that, which has to be uh, that. I mean, that's kind of a revolutionary uh, change, really, in foreign policy for Armenia, I, I would think
1: yes I, I so in terms of uh, you know there's obviously a, a large and strong Armenian diaspora in the United States um and so it's not surprising that, uh, that they would call in the United States to give them more assistance but in terms of also the u.s weighing its uh, national security interests obviously um that's that's Russia's greatest fear right that that the us makes uh, you know didn't like NATO coming up against its it's East, you know, into Ukraine, it certainly would not want to come in into the South Caucasus. So, yes, that is an interesting development.
0: And, and let me ask you this. Uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, is that is that situation essentially solved now? I mean, are we done worrying about that frozen conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan over the status of Nagorno-Karabakh? Uh, or, or do you see more potential for future conflict as as we head into future years?
1: It's a good question, and it's a it's a difficult question to answer. I know a lot of what's been in the media recently, especially after this most recent um, events, where you went from so we'll go back to May of 1994, where Armenia, for all intents and purposes, won that conflict, had control of Karabakh and the Azerbaijani regions up until you know within a few years, and then you had 2020 2022, where the tables turned, right, and essentially Azerbaijan has not regained that territory. So. Uh, on the one hand, and you have for the first time, too, the two leaders, Pashinyan um, and Aliyah of Armenia and Azerbaijan, respectively, really indicating they would like to find a lasting peace between their two countries. So I would say it seems likely from what you, mean, what you read and, and hear that they could have some kind of... uh peace agreement that comes out in the near term. There's talk of as early as next year. So that's one thing though, to have a peace agreement is one thing, to have peace on the ground amongst the people who are living there is a completely different thing, right? Right. And I think that's (laughs) where it's gonna take a lot longer. I mean, look at Northern Ireland, right? Which went through how many iterations before you reached a comprehensive peace agreement. And to this day, you still have tensions in Belfast. And I think, What I saw from doing my 22 months of of research, ethnographic research in Azerbaijan, where literally I spent one of those years going every day to schools and sitting in history, civics and constitution classes. Oh, yeah. The younger generation, unfortunately, who's had no, you know they, getting back to why I think person-to-person exchanges are so important, young Azerbaijanis, most of them, unless they've been fortunate to be able to travel, have had few interactions with Armenians and the same has happened on the opposite side. So you've grown up with this othering of the population. That's much more difficult to do. And I will say this is something that shocked me too. I assumed when I was doing research, if you had actually fought in these horrible wars that Azerbaijan and Armenia had in the early 90s, I assumed you would have the greatest sound animosity towards your other. That wasn't the case. I saw that it was the young people who had never had contact with someone. They were able to more distance themselves. So that's where I think this conflict will have the potential to go on for a longer period of time, especially as both sides, both Armenians and Azerbaijanis want to end up living in Karabakh. So that's going to be a tricky thing to negotiate.
0: And if we could, just let's talk about the fact that uh, that this is also, to a certain extent, a, a bit of a proxy conflict where, you know, you mentioned the Turkic uh, peoples. So Turkey has been a strong supporter of Azerbaijan. We know 100 years ago, plus, uh, there there were some problems between Turkey and Armenia. Uh, they're Armenians, I should say. Uh, and, and now we have Russia sort of backing Armenia to a certain extent, uh, Russia trying to influence more Georgia. Uh, we talk about that in just a second. But is this sort of a, a proxy competition between Russia and Turkey uh, between these two countries, uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan? They're essentially they're kind of client states to a certain extent.
1: It's a good question. I know there are people who have put forth that idea that this is yet another proxy war. I'm not sure I would necessarily agree with that, just because I think if you look at the powers in that region, whether it's Russia, Turkey, Iran, yes, you can say that there's always been a longstanding relationship between Turkey and Azerbaijan. I think that would be the strongest one you'd see in the region. Uh, but let's take Iran. It's um, you know kind of had an off and on relationship with Armenia, and now it's having a warming with Azerbaijan, which it hasn't had for a long time, despite the fact that you, you know, the northwestern part of Iran is ethnic Azerbaijani, right? right? So right. You've got uh, unusual relationships amongst those three countries. Uh, again, Russia's had a longstanding relationship with Armenia, and it's had kind of a more transactional relationship with Azerbaijan. Um, it's wanted to have Georgia like it, but Georgia, you know, since the seventies onward has been basically, please pack up and go home. Right. Um, so <laughs> I th- a lot of the relationships in this area again, with maybe the exception of Turkey and Azerbaijan, I would say are much more transactional based on what the current geopolitical circumstances are.
0: So, and and last question uh, before we finish out this segment, uh, Russian influence in Georgia. Uh, you mentioned a lot of Russians fled out of Russia to avoid being drafted into the war in Ukraine. Uh, 60 Minutes did a really excellent piece about a month ago. Uh, On the influences of of Russians now living in Georgia and the Georgia Dream Party trying to sort of, I don't know, align or be very friendly with Moscow, that's causing a lot of consternation for many Georgians. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, where, where that stands right now?
1: Yes, it's it's uh, it's something that I think everyone should be following, and frankly, from a geopolitical perspective. And I saw the sixty minutes um, segment, and it was excellent. So I actually spent um, a month—the month of July—in Georgia this past summer um, conducting research specifically on this issue. I was interested having, you know, studied for many many years um, IDP populations. I knew that Georgia had these two distinct IDP populations: from Abkhazia from the early nineteen nineties and Ossetia, South Ossetia from the early nineties and then two thousand eight. Um, and so I was curious to know how is, what's the situation in Georgia when now you have these, these Russian nationals who have come in. And again, there's all the former Soviet republics, right? There's a history of. Russian nationals in the country, but it's different, the Russian nationals who were there during the Soviet period, and let's say maybe intermarried in a state during the period, they would be integrated into society. That's different than the wave that's coming across now. And what I did see, um, I mean, I, I was shocked, there's a huge amount of graffiti that you'll see around Tbilisi, the capital, you know, directed against Russians. If you talk to young people, very angry that the Russians are coming in um, and in, in part of the situation, I think it's because the Russians, a lot of them are coming in with more economic resources, right? So it's done things like it's raised the cost of living. Right. Um, so then in some cases, it's displaced, you know, university students who are coming from regions. So they're angry. The prices of things have gone up, but Russians bringing their businesses in too, right? And basically setting up a, a separate um, society in Georgia is, is angering a lot of, especially I would say like young professionals. But then the twist here is that the current government in Georgia is, Russia-leaning, right? Right. And so uh, it puts people in society who aren't happy with the circumstances in a difficult set of circumstances.
0: Yeah, it's my understanding that a lot of the the Russians who were sort of of draft age that have fled uh, are are the ones that come from families that have a little bit of financial wealth so they actually have the wealth that allows them to flee, whereas, you know, people who uh, are lower lower end of the socioeconomic uh, status in Russia are the ones that are being Uh, conscripted into the Army. Uh, So for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. Jennifer Wistrand, who serves as Deputy Director of the Kennan Institute at the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. We're discussing Central Asia, the Caucasus, and forced displacement challenges for vulnerable populations in both regions. Uh, So before we did that uh, quick station identification break, we are talking about uh, the Caucasus region. I'd like to shift over now and really start focusing more on, on Central Asia. If I, if I, if we could, uh, Doctor Westren, there's been an ongoing strife along the Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan border. <laughs> Occasionally, both sides exchange gunfire, or or worse, and people have died along that border area. Could you enlighten us as to why there are border disputes along that particular border area in Central Asia?
1: Yes, uh, it's. Uh Yes. And, and, and so there's a lot of border disputes. I would say in different, we were just talking about border disputes between Azerbaijan and Armenia, between Georgia and Russia. You have a similar set of circumstances in parts of Central Asia. And in particular, the area you're highlighting is a region called the Fergana Valley, which is, it, it encompasses parts of Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, and Tajikistan. And for your your listeners who love maps, I would encourage them just to pull up a map of the Fergana Valley, and you will see the most convoluted um types of border lines that were drawn back during the Soviet period. So the Soviet Union you know, came into being in 1917, but really the delimitation of the former Soviet republics took place basically between 1917 and 1936. And during that time period, Central Asia, which was not states prior to that, right, you had a very different structure there, was carved up, ultimately by 1936 into the five former Soviet Central Asian states. But then Within that, you had kind of other new territorial distinctions that were made. And so, in the case of, you know, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, in this area in the Pergana Valley, uh, you had, in some cases, enclaves, exclaves, depending on which direction you're looking at it, right? So, a part of Uzbekistan that might have ended up in Kyrgyzstan, or a part of Tajikistan that might have ended up in Kyrgyzstan. And during the Soviet period, this wasn't a problem, right? You did have borders between the Union republics. But really, the border that mattered was the external border of the Soviet Union. Right. You weren't supposed to leave the Soviet Union. Um, So you people could move within the Soviet Union. It's proper paperwork. Again, it, you see so you re- regularly had someone who could have been in Uzbek, married a Kyrgyz and was living in Tajikistan and was moving amongst the three republics without much problem problems come about. And it's getting to not just forced displacement, but migration in general is when the Soviet Union breaks apart in 1991. And so you now have some of these, I believe there are eight of these kind of known exclaves, enclaves in the Fergana Valley region, three of which are more prominent because there's larger populations. Uh, The the one that caused um, quite a bit of issue in the last, both in, 2020 and uh, 2021 and 22 is this world, which is a uh, part of Tajikistan and um, Kyrgyzstan. And basically the issue comes that, you know, what are the roads that the, the home country has to be able to get into their exclave or enclave? What relations do they have with the country in which the exclave or enclave is located? And it's resulted in a lot of skirmishes over the past 20 plus years. Initially, a lot of us more locally based. In the recent years, the one last year, around a year ago at this time, resulted in, I believe, upwards of 100 deaths.
0: It was pretty significant uh, uh, combat exchange, really, along that along that border line, which is just—it's so odd uh, that that the those borders were really never finalized. I mean, they were left kind of, you know, unfinished. Nobody really knows where where the borders should be. Even today, it's still uh, very much in uh, uh, in conflict. So, the five Central Asian nations—we've and we've started discussing this—were uh, once part of the Soviet Union. Uh, we've established really on previous shows the influence that Soviet Russia had on the Soviet those former Soviet states in in Central Asia, particularly with Russian speaking citizens being moved into those nations, and the fact that even today Russia Russian is still the dominant language across the whole region. Everybody can converse in Russian. Uh, there has been. Uh, some influences of culture that have started to come back in the region. You probably saw that when you spent time in in Turkmenistan. Uh, It's my understanding, based on, you know, previous guests that we've had on the show and some research that I've done, that there is a difference between being like a a Tajik and a Tajikistani, or an Uzbek and an Uzbekistani. Uh, So if you are, you know, originally culturally... Uh, ethnically from the region and you speak those traditional native languages rather than Russian, there's a different status. Uh, You're looked at differently maybe in the region. Uh, So the people who've been there, you know, historically, are a little different than the ones of Russian descent uh, that, that still live there today. And yet everybody still, uh, to my understanding, mostly gets along except for some of those border disputes. How, how do you see Russia's continuing influence in the region today? Uh, let, let's just focus on Central Asia for now. To what extent does the Kremlin still matter to the leaders and really, more importantly, the people uh, in, in Central Asia?
1: Yeah, excellent question. And it's it's a complicated question, given that even though, again, we lump the five Central Asian states together, there are differences amongst them. So just going back, if I could touch a little bit on the question of language. Yep. So, yes, during the Soviet period, um, Russian was introduced kind of as the form of interethnic communication, uh, even though in Turkmenistan you would have the Turkmen language, Kazakhstan you'd have the Kazakh language, Tajik, the Tajik language, which is actually very similar to Farsi, not a Turkic language. Uh, so during the Soviet period, that Russian language got elevated as, yes, the idea that it was language of interethnic communication, but it also became the language that was required if you wanted to advance, let's say in higher education in the government. And when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, the different republics went different ways in terms of were they going to still continue to have Russian in a privileged position or not. So I will say in Turkmenistan, they very quickly went and moved and said, we actually want Turkmen to become the language that everyone learns. Um, Similar in some respects, with respect to Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan was in a difficult situation because you have such a large percentage of their population, um, first of all, that had been more ethnically Russian, but also that only knew Russian, did not know the Kazakh language. And so you have had to have people learning the Kazakh language over time. So I would say at the present, certainly with my experiences in both uh, Central Asia and the Caucasus, yes, you still have, frankly, you're speaking with a government official who is 40s, 50s, 60s. They are probably going to be fluent in Russian. Um, but have those countries made a push to say that they want the titular language um, to actually be on par and that that should. In some cases now you have people in large swaths of the country that are only learning, let's say Tajik or Uzbek or Turkmen. So there has been a shift in that respect. But in terms of, I will say this language issue still is an important issue. You know, Russia, Moscow, the Kremlin wants to make sure that Russia remains a form of interethnic communication across this now, you know, USSR turned CIS. Um, In terms of your broader question, you know, what influence does Russia still have in, in, let's say, Central Asia, it's an interesting situation. I would say that Russia needs Central Asia, but Central Asia also needs Russia for different reasons. Um, And and getting back to this language or cultural issue, Russia, in many respects, I think, still needs Central Asia to demonstrate it's not only a regional power, but it's a global power. Right. So Russian imperial period turned Soviet period. It was acquiring a landmass and a people now doesn't have that landmass or that people, but if it can demonstrate through these organizations that were earlier discussed, right, the CIS, the CSTO, the EEU, that it's got these regional organizations, which it essentially is kind of the de facto leader, that's a way that it can counter Western influence um, with sanctions, right? Russia needs access to Central Asian markets um, and Central Asia has still been amenable to that. I would say on the flip side, and we didn't talk about this before, but in terms of migration, There's been longstanding migration between peoples of Central Asia and Russia. This predates actually the Soviet period, but became very ensconced during the Soviet period. And then in the post-Soviet period is continued specifically for countries like Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, where upwards, if you look at World Bank data each year, they perennially are in the top five in terms of their GDP deemed dependent on remittances from labor migrants going up to Russia. So the Central Asian states still need Russia as well. if I might just add in just in terms of uh, public opinion, too, I think we tend to think, uh you know, that, that there's anti-Russian sentiment the world over. I would say, again, that's also a tricky question if you look at Central Asia. And I just want to cite um some data collected by a colleague of mine, Kasia Ismanova, who works for the Central Asian Barometer. And again, I encourage your audience members. It's a great place to go if you want to see big data sets that have been collected in Central Asia by Central Asians. They've been doing multiple waves each year. Um, if you ask a question and one of their studies they had in the past cycle of data, you know, in your in your view, who's mainly responsible for the situation in Ukraine applying, meaning the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um and people could have the option, you know, Russia, Ukraine, both Russia, Ukraine, USA, NATO, a number of options, right? Answer in Kyrgyzstan, the first was that Ukraine was responsible, followed by I don't know, followed by Russia. Uh, similarly, um, another question was asked, to what extent do you think Russia's special military operation in Ukraine is justified or unjustified? And there you had options to say, you know, completely justified, somewhat justified. In Uzbekistan, they had 23 percent saying completely justified, 24 percent saying somewhat justified. Wow. And um, so and then go on with other questions, but you, you, it's a tricky situation. You know, Central Asia, again, I think for that reason that it is dependent for jobs and others, it can't come out forcefully, unlike a Georgia, which actually in the Caucasus is taking a very kind of unique position amongst its fellow South Caucasian and Central Asian states and saying, you know, we're going to be standby that we are not pro-Russia, right? For Central Asian states, a lot of them, it's a lot more tricky.
0: Yeah. And you know when we talk about Russia uh, and Russian foreign policy, the, really the influences they they are very concerned about what they refer to as their near abroad. Kazakhstan obviously has a huge border with Russia, and so Kazakhstan I think is a, an incredibly important country for uh, for for Russia for Moscow specifically to stay kind of in in the Kremlin's orbit. The other countries are nice-to-haves, I think, uh, at this point. Uh, but it's very expensive for them to sort of, you know, continue to engage those nations. Which brings me to the the last question in this segment. What what about the role of China uh, in the region? How, how do you see China's influence impacting politics, economics, and, and even the security dynamics in Central Asia?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, too. I think a lot of people predicted... Following the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, that you would see a retreat of Russian engagement in large part because, as you mentioned earlier, you did have a number of Russian nationals who've been living in those places that said, now's the time to go home, right? We're going to go back to Russia because we're going to, we think we potentially will be discriminated in our adopted homes. And so you had a lot of Russian nationals who left. And so some people thought there's a vacuum now. Therefore, China will necessarily move in. I would say it's a little bit more complicated picture than that. In terms of the role China's had, I would say the primary role it's had has been an economic role um, and largely through its Belt and Road Initiative. So this is the uh, initiative it launched back a decade ago in 2013 in Kazakhstan, and actually. So symbolic that it was in Kazakhstan. And this Belt and Road Initiative, again, as your audience knows, is is kind of supposed to be the new Silk Road, right? So connecting, you know, Back in Marco Polo's time, you had Central China going through the Central Asia, but now it's going to be a way for it not only to go through Central Asia, but through other parts of the world. So uh, China has really made economic inroads in Central Asia in the past decade. I was looking at some recent data, you know, over 110 BRI projects have taken place in Central Asia center, China and EU are strong trading partners, um, and so a lot of the overland cargo that goes from China to the EU or vice versa—I believe I saw that over 80% of it transits through Kazakhstan. Um, you've got a lot of Chinese investment in these countries that is now kind of creeping up on what Russian investment would have been. But that's what I would say. The caveat being that while you have had a lot of economic investment in China and I know from talking with people, you know, research-wise or just anecdotally, a lot of people have said, you know, they, they see Chinese around them, they see Chinese businesses and therefore getting back to the language question, a lot of people even saying, well, we'd like our kids to learn Chinese now as opposed to Russian, right? So you can see it even on a cultural shift as well. But I would say the flip to that, um, Chinese investment has also been viewed a bit warily, not only just in Central Asia, we know from the BRA investments, right? The world over that it becomes quote a debt trap for African right. countries and other countries. <laughs> and so that's where I think Getting back to why I think that China will stay in the economic lane and not venture into the security or other is because Central Asian states themselves, I think, are a bit wary of what China is going to do. And one, because they see is it potentially this, this investment, is it actually a debt trap for them? And two, they see China increasing its relations with Russia, right? And so if it's looking to diversify its partnerships, China doesn't necessarily look like uh, someone who is in opposition to Russia, they look potentially like a co-conspirator with (laughs) Russia. And if I might just again, going back to the Central Asia barometer, um, again, some of these excellent questions that were asked um, by Kassia Dismanov and her colleagues. So one of their questions they said, thinking about other countries, please tell me if you have a very favorable, somewhat favorable, somewhat unfavorable, very unfavorable opinion. And then they list the regional players, you know, Turkey, Russia, Iran, China, and they put the US in the mix. Very interesting when you survey the the Central Asian states, you know, the, the most favorable and second most favorable is either Turkey or Russia across the board. Um, China ranks pretty lowly. Like, if you look at, you know, Kazakhstan, a very, how many, what percentage have a very favorable impression? Only 13% have a favorable impression, very wow. favorable China. In okay. Kyrgyzstan, 19%. Uzbekistan, 10%. Similarly, you ask another question related to this. What would you say, or would you say that, again, fill in the blank, Turkey, Russia, China, Iran, or the U.S. is a very friendly, somewhat friendly, somewhat unfriendly, or very unfriendly towards our country? Again, that's where I think you're getting more at the perception level, right? Not thinking purely economic or other. Again, China tends to rate pretty low. Turkey and Russia are what rank highly in people's perceptions. But you know, Kazakhstan, China, thirteen percent in terms of being, you know, very friendly. Uzbekistan, thirteen percent in terms of China being very friendly. So I think public perceptions in Central Asia, they like the investment and they'd like that to continue, presuming it doesn't create a debt trap, but a little bit wary of what's China's end game.
0: Right, right. Uh, for our audience you are listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio, I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. Jennifer Wistrand, who serves as Deputy Director of the Kennedy Institute at the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. We're discussing Central Asia, the Caucasus, and uh, a number of other issues that are linked to both regions. Uh, so, Dr. Wistrand, let's talk about challenges and opportunities for the United States in both Central Asia and the Caucasus. You spent time... Uh, serving in the Department of State in Washington, D.C. This means you understand kind of the critical nature of matching strategy against desired policy outcomes and the extraordinary difficulty of engineering the interagency process to succeed in both those pursuits. And what, are the, what are the most serious challenges you see for American national security interests in both re- regions? And let's start with the caucuses first. Starting with the caucuses? Yep, please.
1: Uh I would say, well, one, I wanted to make a generalization just across actually both regions and then look at the Caucasus. So we from a security perspective, right, we've never had military bases in the South Caucasus and we had it one time in uh, Central Asia, but we no longer do. So right. we don't have a security presence in the region um, from a geopolitical perspective. Going back to the mention of you know the CIS, the CSTO, the EU, we're not a party to any of these regional organizations. Right. So we're not even member status. And then from an economic perspective, we have never had a strong trade relationship with the South Caucasus or Central Asia. So this puts us at a disadvantage, right? Again, getting back to, I think, some of these public perception polls that the Caucasus barometer has done, where Russia and Turkey rank very highly, we rank actually down where China is in public perception, and actually in some cases even lower. And if I just might cite in terms of this question again, very friendly, somewhat friendly, somewhat unfriendly, very unfriendly. I was a bit shocked myself by this, seeing that Kazakhstan for what percentage of people view the U.S. as very friendly? Only 8%. Kyrgyzstan, the United States, 4%. Uzbekistan, the United States, 7%. So we don't actually have a strong public perception, according to this data, the Caucasus barometer, compared to the regional players, right? Russia, China, Iran, and Turkey, which is concerning. I think that is very concerning. And I think it would have been different if you went back 10, 15, 20 years ago. So in terms of You know, the greatest threat, I think, to national security for the U.S. and the South Caucasus is one is this instability ongoing between Azerbaijan and Armenia and the potential for that to flare up again. But actually, I think the bigger threat at present is in Georgia, for what we discussed before. Um, You have... Large number of Russian nationals that have now moved down and I have not seen anything negative about that population. I actually interviewed some of those people this summer and I have sympathies to their circumstances, but it's more what does the Georgian population, which has the right to be anxious, perceive of this population that's come in their country, especially when they know the. Russian President Vladimir Putin has stated that he feels it's his obligation to protect Russian nationals anywhere, right? Well, you've now got a large number of Russian nationals that have moved to Armenia, have moved to Georgia, have moved to Kazakhstan. It gives a pretext, right. getting back to what you speak to earlier, for first peacekeepers to come in and then troops to come in. And given that Georgia has this, you know, Russian leaning Government at present, it's it's, it's a verify. It's a, an actual fear that Russia or Georgia could potentially fall.
0: Well, and, and the Russians invaded Georgia in 2008 and drove all the way uh, to the capital. So uh, they have had a relatively recent experience with Russia's uh, military uh, in Georgia. So I, I I think they have every right to be deeply concerned. So uh, we start off with the Caucasus. How about uh, Central Asia? What w- what do you see are critical American national security interests in the region? Are they economic because of? Uh, kind of the you know the rare earths and other resources that might be available in in the uh, in mining operations in the in the five uh, nation region of Central Asia because we know <laughs> for a modern clean economy we 're going to need a lot of these uh, these high end uh, metals and and rare earth minerals and whatnot uh, to power that that clean economy and and China has an eighty percent uh, monopoly over uh, processed uh, materials. And so we need, you know, we need to get access to other resources around the world. Is that is that a national security interest for us?
1: It, it certainly could be a national security interest. I think that is where it will be interesting to see what happens with the resolution of the Nagorno-Karabakh situation. Right now, what you see is Azerbaijan taking much more kind of a leading role in the South Caucasus it would like to have more of the Belt and Road initiatives coming across Central Asia and Azerbaijan. It would like to be able to kind of further that into Turkey into the EU, as mentioned before, the EU and, and, and China have um, strong trading partners. So if this does actually take place and you have kind of more strong economic quarters going across the region, that will be an opportunity, I think, for the US perhaps in conjunction with Turkey or other allies to say we would like to also play a productive role in this region. So yes, they economically, um, it is gonna be tricky though, uh, I think for the US to get more involved in Central Asia, um, given the fact that it, it was there and it retreated. Um, you know, we have been talked about we're we're talking focusing on former Soviet Central Asia, but many people would also link Afghanistan to Central Asia, right? For going back to earlier mentioned reasons, ethnic, linguistic, and other. Yeah. With US leaving Afghanistan, uh you have had an uptick in problems you you've always had smuggling, trafficking, you know, terrorism threats that have Central Asian states have been afraid of those coming across their borders. And that's where in the past, the U.S. actually did provide a lot of counter smuggling, counter-terrorism, counter, you know, anti-smuggling, anti-trafficking, all of that. And, and they have continued. I'm not saying that it stopped in the interim with, with the situation with Afghanistan, but that's an area where I think if the U.S. were to uh, spend more time focusing on that, that would kind of Lend a positive image in Central Asia of the U.S., and then I think it might be able to make some of those economic inroads that would be productive for it long term.
0: So, as a result of uh, you know the Russian buildup on the on the border with Ukraine for a second invasion, the actual invasion that took place in in uh, 2022, uh, U.S. and our allies, especially the NATO uh, nations, and and also the EU on its own, uh, have been doing a lot to try and tip the scales, uh, you know, throw throw Putin off balance a little bit. So we've had um, American diplomats, uh, American personnel visiting the Central Asian nations. Uh, Olaf Schultz has had significant dialogue with uh, the leaders of the, of the Central Asian states. Uh, Emmanuel Macron, uh, French president, has been engaged. Uh, he's actually traveled to Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan just in November, as a matter of fact. Uh, and, and the U.K. has pursued its own strategy in the region as well. So there's a—I mean, the, the Central Asian republics are getting significant— Uh, diplomatic engagement and economic uh, opportunities now that they weren't getting before uh, that has sort of been a result, I think, of, a third and fourth order of negative impact on on Vladimir Putin's plan that we are now going into Russia's uh, front yard, essentially, or backyard, however when you want to look at it, uh, and, and really trying to turn nations that were formerly very closely aligned uh, with Moscow uh, away from Moscow and maybe more towards the West or other economic opportunities. Is that something that you're seeing at the Kennan Institute as well? Uh, this you know European engagement uh, with Central Asia.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think all the points you made are are spot on. And I would say also you, the U.S. too, getting back to the U.S. and what role is it playing in Central Asia or what role might it play? Uh, President Biden did meet with the leaders of the Central Asian states, and I can't remember if that was either immediately prior to during or immediately after the United Nations General Assembly meetings back in New York in September. So, yes, that, and that was significant, right, for the the five Central Asian leaders to be able to meet with President Biden. Um, And just adding on to what you said, uh, there is an interesting initiative that came out of the White House in September of last year called the Economic Resilience Initiative in Central Asia. And it's specifically doing what you talked about with what France, Germany, and some of the other countries are doing is, is trying, and in the case of this Economic Resilience Initiative in Central Asia, the White House Initiative, it's gonna be a combination of Department of State, USAID and Department of Commerce, basically trying to create an incentive structure in Central Asia for them to both build their human capital and economic capital, which would benefit them, right? But also, hopefully, that this will benefit trade relationships with the US, and that with time, Central Asia would view uh, the EU, the US, as better, more predictable, more reliable trading partners than Russia or China. So it remains to be seen. It's interesting. I will say my sympathies go out, however, to people in Central Asia because they've seen for so many, we're not just talking decades, centuries, right? Which power is going to come in and attempt to exploit them for what reason? So they are right to have been wary of China's Belt and Road Initiative for the past decade. And they are right to be wary of the U.S. And, and Europe now wanting to come in. But my hope is that we actually do come in and say for the long term and have these productive relationships.
0: Yeah, and what's interesting, uh, another article that I have here that I, I don't know if we have a whole lot of time to to talk about it, but one of the really fascinating things about that five-state Central Asian region is that they have a ton of energy uh, resources uh, but they export all of it uh, around the greater region, and a lot of people in the region itself, uh, they, just this past winter especially, suffered from a lack of heating and uh, you know loss of electricity and, and whatnot on a regular basis. So I think some of this Western assistance is, is geared towards uh, helping the infrastructure development in those countries so the people of the countries live better lives. Uh, is that what you're seeing as well?
1: Oh, I couldn't agree more. And the the World Bank does a lot of this with the development projects. So, yes, getting back to the border issue down in that Fergana Valley, a lot of the disputes are not over, you know, where is X, Y, Z, enclave, exclave, and what population is having difficulty accessing its home nation state. But um, the borders cross-cut, right, energy circuits that, again, during the Soviet period, it wouldn't have mattered because you were part of the greater Soviet period. But now, you know, issues over, over dams, over power um which as you point out when you look at the energy resources in Turkmenistan, in kazakhstan and other this shouldn't be a problem to somehow be transferring this to other you know fellow central asian states but it is a problem because as you said a lot of it's getting sold outside and then you've got your own indigenous populations which are not benefiting from it so yes i think ideally again the world bank is always already doing a lot of work in this area but if Um, national governments, be it the U.S., be it Germany, France, others can come in and say, we would like to help make sure that energy, first and foremost, is going to the population and then can be sold outside to generate a profit. Yes, that would be ideal. And I think, again, that would garner a lot of goodwill.
0: Uh, so, Doctor Westrand, we're closing in towards the end of the show. Uh, what I always try to do is reserve a bit of time at the end, uh, so for to give my guests the last word. What what final thoughts would you like to leave with our listeners today on uh, Central Asia and the Caucasus? The the, the floor is yours.
1: <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, well, first, I just want to say thank you for the invitation to speak with you. This really is is an honor. And I just want to thank you for shining a light on Central Asia and the Caucasus as you opened in the the discussion about Turkmenistan. Not only is Turkmenistan often obscured, but a lot of these other countries are as well, right? By the moniker, we give them the stands, right? It's that they're all, you know, this vast landmass with, again, these different ethnic, linguistic, clan, tribal, that, that, you know, that there's somehow one big area. And and they're unique areas, they're fascinating areas. And I guess what I would leave your audience with is, um, you know, whether it's from a national security perspective, Yes, I think we should be interested in the region, but more from just a human perspective. Um, They are fascinating places with interesting histories, interesting cultures. And I would encourage people to um, maybe you can not actually have the opportunity to travel there. Most people won't, but you can pick up a book on it or you can read something about it. And it's it'll make your life that much better learning about this part of the world.
0: So, Dr. Jennifer Wistrand, thank you so much for sharing time with us this morning. i got a couple of follow-up questions. What research and writing projects are you working on right now at the Kennan Institute, and when might we be able to read them?
1: Oh, well, I can't promise any deadlines. I guess will undoubtedly blow the deadline. But uh, myself, personally, I am, uh, from the data I collected this past summer in Georgia, looking at this, you know, the scene of the Russian national who superman- moved down to Georgia, and, and I'm very interested in could this result in any kind of uh, conflict among the displaced, essentially, right? You've got the longstanding IDP populations, two distinct groups themselves, but then the Russian nationals that have come in. And what does this mean from a, a displacement perspective when you've got multi-layers? Because we tend to, again, throw out the word, a refugee, IDP, migrant, but there are layers within that.
0: Sure. And you're deputy director at the Kennan Institute. What programs are planned at uh, the Kennan Institute upcoming, maybe in the next month or so, uh, at, at which the public can attend, uh, either in person or, or remotely for those of us who are back here in Minnesota?
1: Yeah, no, thank you. Again, I encourage everyone to look at that. You go to the Kennan Institute's website um, and you can see the programming we're going to have starting in January. So we will have, for example, uh, with uh, coming up on the two year anniversary of the full scale Russian invasion of Ukraine, but also the 10 year anniversary of the annexation of Crimea. We're going to do some programming related to that. Um, I would say that's kind of what's immediately in the forefront.
0: All right. Dr. Jennifer Wistrand, Deputy Director of the Cannon Institute at the Wilson Center, thank you so much for joining us today here on National Security This Week. Thank you. And, folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. Look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. Have a great finish your week, everybody. Have a great holiday and take care you've been listening to national security this week a weekly show looking into issues of american national security with the host john olson listen every wednesday at 9 a.m for national security this week The Rare Pair is a unique clothing store that provides comfortable shoes, clothing, and accessories for men and women. A store with high-quality brands and customer service. Now, through Christmas Eve, The Rare Pair is offering 20% off store-wide. Some exclusions do apply, but does include those awesome socks that make great,